Hi, everyone, and welcome to the MLOps podcast. I'm your host, Dean, and today I have with me Jason Liu. Jason is a machine learning consultant where he pair programs with uh, various CTOs <laughs> to build awesome machine learning applications, as well as doing uh, prototyping, tech strategy, and tech writing work. His focus is mainly on LLMs and RAG applications. He's also the creator of Instructor, which is an open source tool that helps you extract structured data from LLM outputs. And also for doing a lot of really awesome things with LLMs, we'll probably discuss a bunch of these uh, later. Uh, before that, he was a machine learning engineer at Stitch Fix, where he worked on LLMs, computer vision, and recommendation systems. And um, I know that he built a lot of really crazy systems as those teams grew, so we'll probably talk about uh, all of those. Thanks, Jason, for, for joining me. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So let's dive into it. Um, what are you most excited about in the world of uh, machine learning and AI right now? There's a lot of things to be excited about, but what's your top pick? Yeah, I think the biggest thing right now is that we're almost only limited by creativity. I think, you know, there has been a lot of apps that I had built earlier this year where I wish I could build them for the past like five, six years, like journaling apps, you know, automatically generating like transcripts and, and all that kind of processing work. In the past, I never had, I have never built them because one, I didn't really want to learn front end code and the NLP systems at that time were not sophisticated enough to do that. Uh, but with the advent of LLMs, like they are both the programmer and the backend that I use to build these systems. And now what this means is instead of trying to build a, you know, V0 product to try to bootstrap my data set out to train a language model, to train a machine learning model, I can use a machine learning model to both build my product and serve that product. And then sample data afterwards to improve it. And so that's been super exciting to see it. And I think that shows in all the different startups that have been showing up both in like the infrastructure side and on the consumer side. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. And when you're, when you're saying like use it as a backend and front-end developer, do you mean like in, in the sense of pair programming, in the sense of uh, GitHub Copilot, or in the sense that the models are much more accessible and easy to incorporate into different applications or both? I would say I would say both. Right? Like I had built a journaling app that I wanted to build in like the past five years. And, <laughs> you know, most of the front end was written by the language model. The back end was written in partnership with the language model using Copilot. And the actual Thanks. infrastructure that like serves the recommendations and does all this like com like conversational stuff. Also put a language model. And that only took me, I think, four weeks to build. Whereas in the past, like I had to manage like the Twilio API to like send text back and forth. You had to figure out of like rule-based system you're building like a, you know, state machine. And now the language model just handles all of that really easily. That's very nice. And do you uh, use a self-hosted LLM for that? Or uh, are you using uh, um, ChatGPT or, or something else? Yeah, I'm just using GPT-4 for like almost everything now. Like it, the latency is getting a lot better and just having something like, uh, I think, Telegram uh, is really all you need to have an interaction with a language model. Yeah, that's true. I, I see that they're, um, like, I'm, I'm still blown away by the speed of experimentation that OpenAI is doing at their scale and usage. I opened ChatGPT this uh, morning and I don't even remember what the thing I, I typed in was, but it was so much faster than it was yesterday. Um, so it's definitely getting to the point where you're at pretty much near real time for anything that's not like really real time application, but you can wait a few seconds, then you get everything that you need uh, very easily. Um, so I, I, I tend to agree with that. 
And then, um, did you use uh, Copilot or or AI in building Instructor, or was that all you? Uh, I, I would say Instructor was basically all me because it's only like two hundred lines of code. Right? I think a lot okay. of it there was mostly thinking about um, how to how, how to make the uh, API as simple as possible. I will say the the well, oh, sorry. I would say GBD4 has helped a lot in running the documentation for Instructor. So I have a couple of custom GPTs that are prompted to help me write documentation for the language model, for the, for the, for the library. Interesting. Uh, so I will give it a code snippet and it'll produce a blog post or documentation that I can edit. That's been super Interesting. helpful. That's, that's a nice use case. Are you automating that or is that like every time there's an update, you send it to, to the model and, and just paste in the response? No, so what I usually do is I will code up an example that I think has some kind of like educational value. Mm -hmm. I'll save that in the examples folder. I'll copy paste it, send it to my GPT, and it will come up with the uh, the documentation version of that uh, code snippet. So I'll nice. break it down, give it an introduction, give it a conclusion, and try to motivate the example. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I did that with uh, Dagza, but then now I'm testing it. It's not that we have a we have a chatbot deployed to our Discord channel where if someone asks a question, then it responds first. Um, and I'm trying a different version, um, sort of not locally, but I guess in, in my in my personal uh, ChatGPT account. So every time the current bot gets a question, I copy it into mine and see who does a better <laughs> job. I think mine is winning, so you probably need to deploy it. But uh, but the copy paste thing, it works. It works that it's uh, it's. Um, scalable enough for these applications. Yeah. So maybe taking a step back, like, can you tell me what, uh, tell me and the audience what Instructor uh, is and maybe how you got to make it? Yeah. The general premise for Instructor is to be able to steer language models with code. And in particular, in Python, we use Pydantic. And so Pydantic is a library that can use classes with type hints to generate JSON schema and then validate that JSON schema. So if there's certain errors, like you want numbers to be greater than zero, or you have custom functions that run these validators, these error messages can be parsed by the language model and then used to correct outputs. <laughs> and so now, instead of writing prompts that feels like you know, you're writing code and text edit, you're actually defining classes and models and validators and then passing that to a language model. So it feels more like programming and making things backwards compatible with code rather than trying to jump into the future and just write paragraphs and paragraphs of uh, prompts. Interesting. And so when you sort of built this, what was the main use case that you, you had in mind? Yeah. So a lot of the work I had done at Stitch Fix and with a lot of my clients at that time, I would say in the summer, was around query understanding and breaking down search requests into better written search requests. So okay. if I was to say, you know, tell me what happened last week or, uh, you know, compare and B, a language model can't really take that embedding and make a search. Like last week does not embed to things that happened last week, right? But min date equals today minus seven days, that works just fine. And so what Instructor was built for was to do a lot of this uh, question and query decomposition. And so you would get a list of objects and each object has a rewritten query, a minimum date, and you know some additional tags. And then we can use that to query backend system interesting and how do you like is this something that is uh, uh sort of 
broken down in some way that's uh, very intuitive to the user? Or do you have any tips on how to think about when something should go to a prompt versus when something, something should be logic? I would make it as much logic as possible. Okay. Right? Because we know how to reason about code and reason about systems in ways that we sort of have not figured out how to do that for prompts. And so, you know, if I have a list of search queries, the search query object looks exactly like the input for my search function. Right? And so this kind of like connection, it makes it really easy to reason about these things. And then when you update your function to add another attribute, you get a little nice squiggly line that tells you that, you know, there's something missing in the class. Right. And now not only is your code for the language model that coded for your IDE, the IDE also uses the language model. And now you're working in a system that is very like deterministic with the type system, but also very fuzzy with the ability of using a language model to improve how these things operate. Fair enough. So if I'm trying to uh, formulate some, some uh, set of instructions for this, you'd say, start by trying to formulate this in code. And then if you can't, then maybe send it as a prompt and, and uh, work with that. You should think of instructor almost like a magical like pipe operator. We have data and instructions, and then what you get back out are the arguments to other systems, systems that already exist or systems that you want to build in a deterministic way. And do, how do you, do you think about maybe the, to, to the second point that you just made, like the system that you want to build, but haven't yet, is that sort of where the LLM could fit in? Like you, you can tell the LLM to behave as a part of the system that's not yet built and get some response that's pretty close to what you want and things like that. I mostly think of it as a boundary, right? In the same way that you can write, you know, tests for functions that don't exist and, you know, develop against that. You can kind of define the inputs to a new system that isn't built. But like the first thing that you would do is you would build the instructor function that map your data to the expected outputs, right? So the first set of tests are just making sure that the, you know, probabilistic text data map to deterministic structured data. Once that, those pass, then you can go build the system that takes in that structure. And that system is really simple to build because you're just taking in Python classes and returning Python classes as you, as you would expect normally. Fair enough. And um, one thing that you showed me in a, in a previous conversation uh, that I thought people might be interested in, in, uh, in hearing about is using uh, Instructor as a way to uh, validate uh, qualities about your data using LLM. So maybe you can share a bit about that. Yeah. So one of the things that differentiate Pydantic to other, th other libraries or tools like data classes, is the ability to define validators. And validators are just kind of type types of superpowers where you have different functions that can check the properties of a value and then mutate that value or throw an error message. So a simple example could be making sure that the age property is than zero, right? You can define a simple function that says if, you know, if the value is greater than zero, throw an error message that says the age must be greater than zero. Otherwise, you know, return the value. You can do other things that, you know, title case a string or whatnot. But because these are just generic functions, you can also just use language models as you would, you know, maybe call a database or make another post request. And so by doing that, you can define more complex validators that can do things like content moderation or verify that the chain of thought is reasonable for the answer that you give, or verify whether or not the citations you use for an answer match the actual original. Yeah. 
So I, I think that uh, this is probably going to be a thread that uh, I'll, 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 we'll discuss in like other podcast episodes that are upcoming. Um, but I think that one of the points that come out of this, at least for me, is that this is a mental model shift and relates to the point that you were making earlier about the change that LLMs bring uh, to the world, which is that you can now, in the use case of validation, you can think about LLMs as more than just a chat interface or some uh, you know, smart uh, model that you can ask questions of. You can actually have it role play, uh, in this case, a, a person maybe that's supposed to validate your data. So a lot of companies, I know I've spoken to a lot of people, have a, a part of their pipeline, which is human in the loop, where a person needs to look at their data and say that it makes sense uh, according to some business logic. So that person can now maybe be uh, incorporated into the automation pipeline uh, via something like uh, uh, GPT or any other LLM. And so thinking about the role you'd want a human to play within the pipeline of data validation and then trying to delegate that to the model, I think is, is sort of what this unlocks or at least demonstrates really nicely. Um, so... Yeah, I don't know if that if that correlates to how you uh, were thinking about this when you built it, but yeah. Yeah, I think the biggest thing really is that once we bring all this magic of the language model back into you know, just validation, you know, data modeling, uh, it, it gives us language that we've used for like many years already, right? Like there's ideas like constitutional AI, but constitutional AI is verifying that the response of a language model follows certain principles. To me, that's the same thing as validation. That's the same thing as verifying that like the, you know, password one matches password two, or verifying that you know there are no swear words in a username when you set up a gamer tag. It's very reductionist, but what it actually gives me is the ability to work with these systems as I always have. Like we know how to handle like database migrations and schema migrations. We should be able to handle data model migrations for the language model. That's uh, I think that's a really nice mental model for these things. Um, I, I think in general, uh, one of the things that struck me when uh, we uh, first spoke was how you think about uh, UX in, in uh, general and for uh, the areas that we're interested in specifically. So if you can share maybe some thoughts about building good user experience for, let's start with uh, ML uh, uh, tooling packages like Instructor or other packages that you're uh, interested in sharing your thoughts about. Yeah, I mean... I think this comes down to a lot of the times when people ask me about Instructor, they think of like, like, what is the roadmap? Like, what are you going to build next? And I think right now, my main goal is to build a good knife. And what you want to teach with the library, what you want to teach with the blogs really is just like how to write better code in general. Because those are the skills that you can take to any problem, whether or not it's language model specific. Um, what I'm not trying to do is like build out this knife then sell you the kitchen and then build at a restaurant, right? I think a lot of it really is just getting out of the way of the developer and giving them better ergonomics on using these tools. Uh, and then, you know, leaving the frameworks and all that kind of stuff to just sort of settle down as the ecosystem matures. Interesting. But then, I mean, maybe, maybe you're, you're, you don't have this aspiration, but like uh, instructor could or could uh, not be part of that uh, future ecosystem. So is that something that you even think about? And if so, like, how does that impact the decisions that you're that you're making on what to build or not to build? Yeah, I, I think it, I think of less of what to build, what not to build, and more about like what are the 
design patterns that are worth teaching to new developers. I think the introduction of language models makes, you know, something like Python more accessible to a lot of people, right? And again, the goal really is just to teach good programming and, and using Instructor as a, as a wedge to sort of do that education a little bit better. Yeah, I'm less worried about like making a product or any kind of like SaaS or enterprise business. Interesting. Let's just focus on like teaching, Py teaching Python really. I, I like your educational uh, leaning. And then um, if we maybe, um, if, we, if we extrapolate or not extrapolate, if we move over to applications that are based on LLMs, how do you think about that? I, I, I guess I shared a few of thoughts of like making the task something that you'd give a person to do and trying to do that with the LLM. But, um, but what is your sort of user experience thoughts around uh, uh, LLMs? Yeah, I, I think the biggest, I would say the most important thing these days is that I think everyone already kind of knows how to work with LLMs now. They understand that the prompts are very important. They understand that it's fine-tuning data. I think the biggest thing that people are still missing is really thinking about how to collect that feedback. Language models gets you a product day one. But the issue is, unless OpenAI is changing a model or unless you're swapping out language models every time a new one comes out, the way to improve these things are still very unknown. And so a lot of what I think about for the application layer isn't necessarily the language model, but more on how are we collecting feedback data to improve these models in the future, right? Today, you might want to use GPT-4. Next year, if GPT-5 doesn't come out, you still want to improve your product in these ways. And collecting that feedback data is, is what's most important. Yeah, the... One thing that I've seen uh, when talking to people that are building out applications or looking at the uh, LLM applications that we're, I, I would say, playing around, we, we're play, playing around with or not really like deployed at scale in production or something like that, is that uh, a lot of times when you look at how people actually use this, then you realize that there are a lot of improvements that you can make that are not directly tied to the actual details of the LLM. And that's being overlooked, I think, more here than in other cases because it's such a powerful tool. Uh, so it, it's it's like the you have a hammer, everything seems like a, a nail. But actually, if you invest a bit of time in figuring out what the details of your use case are and how to like wrap this very powerful tool in a way that's dedicated to your use case or your users or something like that, then you get a like orders of magnitude better results. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people really at the beginning of this year, thought that the LLMs on these embeddings could do everything, but they're finding that it's not the case. But really, I think what that, what that means is even additional amount of any kind of thinking and good design can take you even further as a result because everything else has been handled. Yeah, that's true. I think, well, I guess we'll, we'll uh, talk about uh, RAG in a moment, but uh, what, do, what do you think uh, most people, uh, we talked about one thing, I guess, but what, what do you think about most people get wrong about LLMs? Again, it goes back to this idea with Instructor, which is that the LLM is not kind of this, this special class of models, right? Like, I see the LLM the same way someone might think of like a database or like some attraction over a data center. This is just a very accessible way to access some kind of like special compute. And so, again, to me, it's just code. And so being able to just think of building the system as a good design, it's a good designer, a good programmer is really all you need to build a good system, right? You have to be intentional and thoughtful how you model data you have to have good design and develop good user experiences and have good feedback and everything else i think will flow as a result i think too many people think of this as a very special class of of problem and you know elevate it higher than they really should be 
That's interesting. I, I guess one one uh, follow up to that is, um, do you think that the reason uh, they aren't a sacred class of models is because they are so multimodal? Because I can imagine if you're trying to put, if you're trying to work with instructor and use, uh, you know, classical CNN computer vision model, then that's not going to work in most cases because most of the data is not formulated in that way. Uh, I'm curious if, if multimodality is what like finally unlocked this being like another application. Not too much. If you think of like the type system, it's it's still very very simple, right? Like you know, databases can store like floats, ints, and lists, and there's relationship across these things. The language model really is just like mapping the type of like all strings and all pictures to a more structured output, right? Like. Most sure. language models just map string to string, mm-hmm. which is a, a very primitive, like a very primitive type system. Like my post request returns a piece of text, I'd kind of be annoyed by that. But with something like Instructor, you just get structured data back out, right? But to me, I just think it's a type system where these functions are a little bit more mechanical. Fair enough. Um, and if you'd have to sort of um, decide what to work on next or what you see as the biggest problems. When you're looking at these, let's let's say specifically in the LLM ecosystem, but what are the main things that are unsolved? I think the biggest one in terms of both infrastructure and training is how to capture feedback data, right? How do we build a product or a system where the interactions themselves can improve the model, right? For example, if you consider Netflix, we know that every time you watch a movie, every time you click a movie, Netflix is learning that and, and being able to improve. Netflix is even able to experiment on the thumbnail they show you to figure out what, you know, which movie actor is, is going to be the one that you click on the most. Sure. But with the language model scene, like, it's really unclear how we get any of the feedback out. We're having a conversation with a chat, chat agent, how do you tell it that it's doing a good or bad job? Right now, all we have is like a thumbs up, thumbs down. Right? Yeah. Do we optimize for the number of, of time spent? Right. For, for example, character guy right now has a two-hour time span. Is that the right objective? Or should it be the, you know, shortest amount of time because we're actually trying to do some kind of, like, question answering, right? It's really unclear how that bakes into the product and bakes into the training data of that model. The second thing really is the network effects. If you consider the Netflix example, if we watch, you know, a similar movie and we both like it, and then you watch a new movie, there's a chance that I might like that movie. And there's sure. collaborative filtering aspects. And as there are more users that are going onto this platform, the platform improves. But in the language models, again, it's unclear how these things work, right? Like if I have a conversation with a language model of a certain style, it does not really improve your interaction with that language. And so figuring out the design mechanism that can in- inhibit uh, introduce these network effects, I think are also going to be a very powerful interaction pattern. Interesting. So uh, on the first point, I um, I gave a talk uh, about like uh, evaluating um, LLMs or I guess customizing and evaluating LLMs, and part of the the points I was making is similar to what you're saying. I'm curious if you think that the uh, problem is more on the product side of like in Netflix, the idea is like if I'm watching something, I don't need to thumbs up it, right? Like if I watch something to the end, then I probably liked it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in the example that you gave for for a chatbot, maybe uh, it might be the amount of time spent. I thought uh, one of the things that I thought was really nice is how many people click the copy button. That sounds like a good correlation yeah. to getting value out of this thing. 
uh, how many people share, of course, and things like that. Um, but I'm guessing like there's that layer, which I'm guessing is going to be very specific to each company. And maybe there's also like, uh, I don't know, an instrumentation layer for that, something like segment for AI that maybe needs to auto automatically yeah. collect this uh, information. Would you say that there's equal problems in each one or that it's more one than the other? I definitely think it's both. I think this segment for AI is a very clear example, right? Where, you know, even in systems like in 80s agent systems, we don't really have a good way of seeing the entire pipeline and how these things operate, right? Just because it writes SQL doesn't mean it's actually going to be correct SQL. If you copy paste that and you get an error, you know, can we make sure that the error message that propagated back to the language model, right? Maybe the runtime is very slow. Could the language model have written a more efficient query by understanding that the joins were done incorrectly? I think these, there are tons of different ways of improving the systems that people are not really able to capture right now. Interesting. And your bet is that there's going to be network effects for LLMs? Because I would bet against that, but, it, but I'm curious. Uh... I mean, I think if there's no network effects, the product you build is probably just not as good, right? You could imagine a world, for example, that uh, let's consider one of my clients, actually. So I work for a company called Nero, and they do a lot of like sales automation and, and rag against like sales. And one of the things we work on is being able to extract snippets. Sure. So when you attach a, a new file to an email, how do you talk about this uh, piece of content or this piece of marketing, right? Well, for Nero, one of, one of our goals is to be able to identify the top performing snippets across your sales team. So even if you are like the worst salesperson and you attach a piece of content, we're going to introduce for you the best piece of content for that, for that response and the best way of framing that content. You could argue that's a, sale, that, that's, that's a network effect. As there are more salespeople on your platform, the overall performance of every individual will now improve. Fair enough. Yeah, I guess you can the, imagine. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. You can also imagine an example where maybe you're doing like legal clause search, where when we pulled in data, there's a thumbs up, thumbs down system. And so as there are more like lawyers that are using the platform, maybe the retrieval is getting better. And so as you get more users on board, you now there's more personalization, more accurate searches. And again, that's, that's some form of network effect. Yeah, I, th I think that the, the way I was thinking about this is that's, that's sort of a network effect that's very tied to the, just the data, right? Like if you have yeah. more data, then your, your product is going to be better. Maybe this is sort of the, the standard definition of a network effect in ML. Like if you have more data, your product is, is better than you have an ML network effect or something like that. Um, but yeah, that, that makes sense. I think that there's a lot of things that are going to be um, harder in generic models. Like if you're using ChatGPT, so maybe I'm using it as a marketing person, some other person is using it as a sales, so others is uh, uh, you know chatting with it about uh, building uh, ML tools or whatever. So generalizing from one to the other is going to be much harder unless you do uh, what I think OpenAI is doing, which is like the mixture of experts, then maybe for specific tasks, you get the network effect in a subset uh, and that works. Within companies, like the example that you're giving, that makes much more sense to me. Like every company is going to have their own jargon, their own products, their own uh, things. And, and so you have to, or you're probably going to want to adapt the model to what they need. Um, and as they get more data, that the quality is going to improve significantly. Right. But that's a conscious decision from the product as product and for the company to include that training data, right? Like 
I can very easily imagine a world where if you just have a simple transcript summarization prompt, you can integrate that with Zoom all you want, but from, from today and a year from now, that model isn't guaranteed to improve just because you have a language model in the hook. Sure. You still have to make that decision to collect that data and figure out what is the right way of interacting with these things. Yeah, I uh, agree. And I guess one last question about this uh, is when in, in your experience, right, have you already seen a case where uh, people have done more than prompt engineering plus RAG to customize LLMs in a real production application? Thinking about like uh, parameter efficient fine tuning or LoRa's or things like that? Uh, not in my experience. I think for the most part, there's still like so much room to improve your system just by doing RAG and just better prompt engineering. I think most of the fine tuning will likely come from fine tuning embedding models to improve retrieval. But for something like GPT-4, the writing and the reasoning is good enough that a lot of the, a lot of the improvement there will end up being just better prompting. Fair enough. That makes sense. So let's talk yeah. about RAG. Um, one thing that we discussed is that uh, you have this idea where RAG is very similar to recommendation systems, and I'd like to to share this idea with the audience as well. So if you can elaborate on that, cool. So so I can almost go over a little bit about what Stitch Fix did and why I see this comparison with, with what Stitch Fix did in particular and how RAG works. So with Stitch Fix, what you did was you would send a request note to the company. He's like, hey, I'm going to a wedding in Miami. I want to spend some time at the beach, then I'm going to Alaska, right? And what we use language models for in that situation was to process that request into a set of search queries that we can use to find clothing. Then we had a stylist take those recommendations, build you a fix, and then write you a note that tells you why we picked these things. So we might say, we got you some, you know, a, a warm base layer for your trip in Alaska, but because you're going to this, you know, wedding and going to Miami, Here's a bikini, here's a pair of shorts and some flip-flops. And so what we did was inventory, filter that inventory. We then made a diverse, for some definition, subset of that inventory. And we sent that back to the user with some, you know, note. That's effectively exactly the same thing. That's what RAG does. Here, the inventory is the text chunks that you would, that contains the answer. The sourcing of those text chunks come from embedding search, from re-ranking, from all these different filtering tools. Generation is just, you know, taking in these text chunks, putting them into prompt and then asking for an answer. And then again, the shipment of clothing we send you is exactly the same thing as the answer we have with the citations of where those text chunks came from. And so when you buy something from us or return something from us, that's the same thing as giving us feedback or whether or not the answer was correct or whether or not the citation was relevant for the question we had. And so if you think about the two systems, they're actually very much in parallel. And sort of a lot of the things that we've learned from, from building out system by Fix, I think really apply to the RAG application role. I really, really like this. Uh, I, I think a lot of people are going to find this useful in, in thinking about how to solve, let's say, deeper problems with their RAG application. It gives you sort of a domain that's already, uh, a lot of work has been uh, put into it. And so there's yeah. probably a lot of learnings that we could uh, apply. One, one question I wanted to ask you about RAG is, um, I think a lot of times uh, in the past year, when people mention this, they only think about uh, embeddings and vector similarity as the uh, uh, sort of ranking methodology for selection, selecting which uh, information to use. 
Mm-hmm. Is that the same way that you think about it? Or do you already, or are you already in a position where it's clear that vector similarity is a type of query among many that you need to do in order yeah. to decide what to use? It's funny because I had been building these like embedding models and like vector database search stuff in like 2016 and 2017. And the reason I had done that at the time, because I was just like an intern, right? Like the vector embedding work is kind of the lowest hanging fruit. And to me, like the easiest thing to yeah, but, but the hard part of search is actually everything else. And so I think this year, vector databases have become more popular. But I think that upcoming years, people are going to realize that this is, to me at least, the equivalent of an intern project that can be done in like two to three months. And the hard work begins when you build out more opinionated search. Right. You know, like vector, like vector search really is a very fuzzy way of doing uh, any kind of retrieval. And oftentimes it's just very specific categories of filters that we want to apply, right? Like we could embed the word blouse and search that, but there's still a, a, a chance that, you know, of all the things that show up, there are going to be things that look good with a blouse. And so the recommendations yes. that we get aren't all blouses in this example that we have a Citrix, right? And that's going to be the case across many, many different kinds of search. Um, yeah, I think in, in the, the example I gave with using instructor, like that was the example of going beyond embeddings, right? Not only do I rewrite the query, I can pass in things like relevant dates, different keyword filters, and Boolean logic that cleans up the search to produce something that's actually truly useful. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, that's a really important point. I think that the, um, the way I, I tend to think about vector searches is kind of like, uh, associative uh, memory so you 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 hear something and then like what are the first few things that come to your mind that's basically uh, uh i think it's a it's a good analogy for how this is working and of course if i throw a word at you uh and then you think about things not all of them are going to be the context that i might have intended when i gave you that word um, and so those uh sort of later filterings make it uh on topic for the user uh, and I think that that's one of the things that I also really liked about the demo that uh, you gave me for instructor is that that's, uh, to me, that's the most immediate use case. Like you're able to both do regular filtering, but also use the LLM to ask further questions about the results to get the most specific thing that you can to the user. Uh, so this actually ties in also the UX thing. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, it's, it's a really useful, um, analogy. And I think, uh, um, we shouldn't do the, we should repeat the mistakes of the past of thinking that we're reinventing the wheel when there's a lot of things that have already been done in this space and we could just use them instead of reinventing them. Um, yeah, I think it yeah. goes back to this idea of like, you know, these language models aren't really like a, a sacred class of models, right? All these things have their like backwards compatible, you know, frameworks and language. If we just use that language, it actually makes language models less magical, but it also makes everything that we're doing a lot more tractable, right? Like, there are years and years of like, retrieval, like information retrieval and recommendation systems research, and now we can just easily apply them to the language model case. One yeah. thing I do want to call out in this embedding example too, is that a lot of people are not fine-tuning the embeddings. Right? Yeah. A lot of people are using the embeddings from like a two, from Hugging Face. And what this means is that the actual objective on what to recommend is not clear, right? For example, Ada 2 cannot figure out like this comparison. I love coffee and I hate coffee. Right? Should they be similar or different? 
If it was a dating app, they should be very different because they're specifying like the negation of a preference. But you can also reasonably think, well, this is just talking about food preferences. And so they belong in a similar space, right? Yes. So again, just the product that you use and the data that you end up collecting should really go and inform how these embeddings are being used. So can you maybe, uh, uh, let's, let's dive a bit into that because I think that would also be useful to a lot of people. How would you go about um, fine-tuning an embedding model at a high level? Yeah. The general idea is embedding models learn by doing this thing called contrastive loss, which just means that we want to push things together when it makes sense and we want to pull things apart when they don't make any sense. And so you can imagine a world where if you just have a question with some retrieved documents, you could say, well, everything I cite, that's relevant. I want to push those embeddings closer together. And the things I don't cite, I've got to push them apart. Or you could, you know, hire some bunch of people to label some data, or you could like use a language model to tell you what is similar, what is dissimilar. But ultimately, the data that you want should be in the form of something like this. You have a piece of text and you want to have examples that are similar to it for some definition. So in your dating app example, maybe negation of preferences would be dissimilar, whereas, mm -hmm. you know, the same similar preferences might be similar. Right. And that, again, isn't really determined by you, but determined, again, by the users of your product and the, the feedback that they give. Right. That's you know, awesome. Like for a dating app, it would just be the people you swipe left on versus the people you swipe you know, right on. For a movie, it's the things you liked and the things you didn't like. Uh, there's analogies in every single uh, data set. That's great. Um, I think this would also be useful. Um... And I guess, uh, do you have any specific recommended reading on this uh, on this topic? Because I think a lot of people are going to be doing this uh, a, a bunch now. Yeah, I would say take a look at all the great work that the Sentence Transformers team has done. So if you just Google like Sentence Transformers and look at their uh, documentation. It's very good and it goes over a bunch of different examples of uh, how we can do this kind of fine tuning. And mostly just understanding that like, the architecture doesn't really matter too much. What really matters is the training data that you have. It all goes back to the data. There's no, there's yeah. no escaping it. Yeah. Um, so tell me, like, everyone knows, and I, I feel like I'm shortening the timeframes with every episode that I record, but everyone knows that in the world of ML and AI, a, a week is like a year, uh, and a month is like a decade and things like that. But uh if, if I were uh, to press you on it, what would you uh, predict for the next year in uh, AI and machine learning? I would say the biggest one is that things like transfer learning and fine tuning will become even more accessible. Like I wouldn't be surprised if in the next year, you know, like 30% of all of the GPT calls are called into like fine tuned models rather than generic models. Interesting. I think that would be one of the big bets that I would take. And whether that's like a, a, a LoRa from a local model or anything like that, I think these companies are going to get to a point where they are able to collect that data and actually train these, these task-specific models. Because many of the times, you don't need general intelligence. You need to do something good for the problem you're solving. Interesting. The, the subtext of what you're saying is also that um, maybe the landscape will become more distributed with respect to applications. Is that, is that also uh, correct to say? I'm not sure really distribute against what, maybe distribute against these different fine tunes, but I'm, my money is still on like something like OpenAI just being like 90% of all the, the LLM API calls. But, but then like OpenAI doesn't, I mean, 
they offer the GPTs functionality, right? Which is great. I, I use mm -hmm. it. Uh, it lets you provide context. It lets you provide, uh, you know, guidance. But it's it's not like something that you can interact with in code yet. So do you expect them to uh, release something like that? Or are you saying that that's going to be enough for most use cases? I see. I would say, like, I'm less bullish on the assistance API that I, they have that uh, came out recently. But I'm actually more bullish on the fact that once GPT-4 fine-tuning becomes available, that as you get user data, it just becomes more and more accessible to just fine-tune GPT-4 rather see. than worry so much about the prompt engine. I see. Interesting. Uh, so also, I guess that the takeaway from this is that you expect uh, the, the ratio between prompt engineering and fine tuning to change because now it seems like 98% yeah. of things are, are prompt engineering, right? So yeah, I, I would hope uh, so. I would hope so. <laughs> I think prompt engineering makes sense when you have no data, which is why people keep talking about like evals and what, the, you know, what their evals are. Right? But once you actually have objectives, they know exactly what they're training against. And these <laughs> general benchmarks will matter less because these general benchmarks don't capture the internal benchmarks you have around your business. And I think in the next year, we're going to be really capable of just saving all this data and then fine-tuning uh, models that work specifically for them. And these conversations around these like large benchmarks will, will matter less and less. Fair enough. Um... Do you think that, the, like, how is the evaluation landscape going to look then after this? I think it will just become less around the evaluations against large benchmarks and specifically around the data sets that you build, right? Like, I don't think when, you know, Netflix has an AI that is writing summaries for movies based on the transcript. Like, I don't think they really look at the hugging face embedding benchmarks or like, yeah. you know, human eval because they have yeah. specific evaluations against right? Neither will Amazon or Facebook or any of these companies. And I think in the next coming year or so, even the smaller companies will have their own internal evals and they'll worry less and less about these, these larger ones. Yeah, I think our, um, our uh, bet or my bet uh, um, is, is similar in, the, in, in that sort of everything needs to be more specific. And that means that the bigger evals are, are not going to cut it for most yep. people. And that the evaluation, like you shared sort of your thoughts about uh, things that are still uh, not unsolved. I think that uh, capturing feedback and evaluation are are uh, correlated, but I think that evaluation feels unsolved. Like it feels like we're showing off on a lot of benchmarks that are really hard yep. to translate into uh, the end result. Like I can, I, I did this uh, test uh, on my on myself, uh, this experiment. And I built a sort of a set of, like a test set for prompts that um, I thought were useful to our users that are asking for support, like on our platform and things yeah. like that. And then I asked both GPT 3.5 and GPT 4 to give me a response. And uh, without knowing which response came from where, I ranked them. And they were closely tied, which is very different from the experience when you're chatting with a model and there's a back and forth, right? Like, most people, I, I've not met a lot of people that have tried both models and are like, yeah, they're more or less the same. Like GPT-4 is yeah. is meaningfully better, but with these evals, it wasn't very easy to say to, to say that. So I think that being able to evaluate um, to evaluate these models in a way that's much more correlated to what we actually experience in the end is something that needs to still needs to be solved, and I'm hoping will be solved in the next year. Yeah, to add to the 
that line you had said, like, what we actually experienced in the end, what we experienced isn't even the Eva, right? Like, if we're thinking about building a business, right? I think a lot of people will come to me and it's like, oh, we want to improve our RAG system. When someone says that, usually what I hear is they want to improve churn or more yeah. truthfully, want to improve revenue. And yeah. people don't really have an understanding of like how these evaluations actually are predictive of the business outcomes they want to drive, right? Like we talk about yeah. latency, we talk about price, but really price doesn't matter if you're actually driving like a business impact, right? But it's, it's still very unclear. And I haven't seen any research come out from any of these big companies that say, you know, a 30% reduction in LLM response time improves revenue by 1% in, you know, conversion of a shopping chat. Like no one yeah. has really published any kind of research like that. And again, it goes back to this idea that, you know, there has been many times where I've worked at companies where we improved the um, ad click rate of a model by 1% and actually see uh, like a large improvement in the revenue of that model. And again, yeah. that's a, that goes back to this observability pipeline of like, can we even figure that out? Can we figure out and can attach every single LLM response to a churn metric, to a lifetime value metric, to an average order value metric? Because those are the things that are actually, right? Like you don't yeah. want to have a chat bot that's trying to do sales and optimize for the number of back and forth. That's like time to conversion becomes lower. And so I think all these things be things that the, these businesses will wake up to in the next year and realize that, oh, wow, like what we should really be measuring and measuring impact against is the outcomes, the business outcomes rather than, you know, human eval or like MMLU. So with that uh, sort of, uh, I, I think not controversial take, but uh, probably some people will say that that's controversial. Tell me uh, something that you think is true about the state of machine learning and AI, but that few people would agree with. I think if you've been doing machine learning for a long time, nothing much has changed. I think the only thing that has changed is the order in which you build your data flywheel, right? Like it used to be, you like build a product, you get users, you collect that user data, and then you build a model that improves that system. All we've done in this pipeline is move the last step to the first step. But this is a cycle. This is a flywheel, right? And so at any point in that flywheel, you can't really tell where you started. And so for people who've been building these machine learning systems that are trying to drive like a business outcome, it looks the same as every other problem. And I think people really want to make this LLM very, very special. They want to do like, you know, LLM for X, LLM for Y. But really, it's always just been machine learning for X, machine learning for Y, which is really just good X and good Y. And you still just have to build a good product. And again, okay. if we just like demystify all of this, we can go back to very, like good fundamentals of how to build things. Fair enough. Um, I guess the second thing that, that I really, you know, talk about as well is I think just that I think more economic value will be unlocked through structured data extraction and things like that. Where you're training a language model to communicate with a system, like a software system, rather than building these chatbots that communicate with, like humans. Yeah, um, and I think making that work really, really well will also just be hugely beneficial for all the things that we're doing in the day to day. Yeah, I think that the th this might actually be like a controversial take, but uh, but I like those, so I, I'll I'll risk it. <laughs> I think that the like if you think about uh, economic value for first principles, right? Like if you uh, invent a new activity and you create a product that's really good at doing that. 
that's that's cool. Um, but that that sort of uh, it remains to be seen what the value of that new activity that you invented is, right? Like you can build the best new gadget that does X, but if no one cares about X, that it doesn't really matter in any in mm -hmm. any sense. And what we know has a lot of value is all of the things that we're already doing and being able to automate them or or not automate them in the sense of like reducing the people that are doing them, but just having more people doing that uh, in real time. And I think that that also ties in, a lot of these things are, uh, are tying in, into this conversation. It ties into like letting LLMs uh, role play in different things because when they do that well enough then you get the um, the actual ability to do more with your time and more things that you actually want to do and not like cool things that you wouldn't do before like asking a computer to write and illustrate uh, whatever yeah. uh, children's book um, but I, I, I'm not sure if there was a huge uh, uh, deficit in children's books that that's like the biggest application that we need even though maybe I'm yeah. not sure um, but yeah, sorry, yeah. you want to say something. This brings me back to the quote. I forget who said this, but really this idea that like, you know, Ford introduced the automobile, but the innovation really was the assembly line. Yes. I think what these language models are doing should be more around improving that assembly line and building a good assembly line rather than trying to like reinvent the car, for example. And then, that's also where like the structured output really comes in, where a lot of that is just making these computer systems a little bit more robust or more scalable or more, uh, you know, reliable. I like that. Um, so let's uh, end with uh, recommendations. What do you uh, recommend for the audience? And it does not have to be related to uh, data science, machine learning. It could be oh, man. Netflix shows that you like. Oh, that's a hard one. I, haven't, I, I, I didn't really think about this. Um, I would really just recommend people use products, like use good products and really think about why they're good and the different ways that we can sort of improve these systems, right? I think once you just start thinking about how different systems can be improved, like whether it's like using your laptop or like driving a car, we can sort of see these patterns occur like everywhere, right? And once you get like the taste for trying to figure out like why something could be better, we can bring that back into the stuff that we do. You know, and, and make our systems a lot, a lot more interesting, a lot better. Um, we should just say like, do a bunch of things and complain, and then once you do that enough times, we'll really figure out why you like something, why you don't, and apply it to your own life. Uh, I'm a big fan of complaining. I think that the there was a Steve Jobs quote about uh, realizing that the box that you're in uh, was built by people who are no better than you, and starting to question whether or not you can change that uh, structure uh, and and the the world around you. So. Um, I think that it, it's sort of a, a product thinking approach where mm -hmm. the things that you take for granted, you probably shouldn't, and they might be able uh, to improve and you might be able to improve them personally. And then taking it to the things that you actually uh, work on, where you actually have the uh, influence to improve them right now and applying that. Um, I, th I think it's very easy to get into the mental model of like, well, I, I, I'm not making an impact on anything around mm -hmm. me. I might as well just, you know, live the the live the things live the life that i that i have and and be fine this is getting philosophical but the moment you start questioning these things you're able to do much more and make a much bigger impact and i guess now is the best time to do that when you have llms at your service yeah exactly can shorten the time to build significantly yeah and a lot of it is just doing the reps and working on developing the language you need to describe some of these problems right
if you complain once, you just sort of have an internal feeling about it. But if you do it enough times, you develop language and you develop taste. And those are the things you can actually do and do, take and do productive work. That's awesome. That's a great recommendation. If uh, people want to um, follow you, where, where should they do that? Yeah, so if you want to follow me, you can check me out on Twitter, uh, JXNLCO. I would say, you know, 70% of it is like machine learning stuff. And the other 30% is just, you know, random stuff up in my life. Try to keep it a little bit more personal. And uh, yeah, check out the instructor blog. I, I, you know, the URL is kind of complicated, but I'm sure you'll like put a link somewhere in the bio. But yes. uh, yeah, check that out as well. I uh, definitely recommend uh, following Jason on Twitter and also reading the instructor blog. I found it uh, really nice. The code examples are very clear. You can sort of all like very quickly understand the magic in it and then try it for yourself. Um, and I think it's, it's uh, going to be very, uh, very useful uh, in teaching people how to think about these, uh, you know, making this unstructured thing much more structured and much more useful in many other uh, use cases. So, uh, yeah, I have high, high hopes for it. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I Thank think you, the main Jason. Goal is to sort of... yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. No. Uh, go ahead. So uh, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to, to be a guest on this uh, podcast. Um, I had a lot of fun uh, talking to you, and I'm looking forward to the next time I, I get to have you on. Thank you for having me. I, me as well. Great. Uh, so that's it for today. Uh, bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to the MLOps podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend or add a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get this episode. Thank you and see you next time.